Hey, Miles, Scott and Jean got married in 1994, right? Yeah, Rachel. Our 10th anniversary is their 20th. The year, anyway. They got married in March. That doesn't add up. Yes, it does. 1994 to 2014. That's 20 years. Yeah, but they spent 12 years in the Ascani future, so in subjective time, that'd be 32 years. Or 22, given that Jean died in 2004. I mean, assuming you ignore the weird Marvel time stretch anyway. Okay, that's the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, right? Where Rachel Summers pulls them to the future to raise Cable? Right. So Rachel's their kid from the Earth-811 timeline, yeah? Technically, she's the kid of the Scott and Jean of Earth-811, but close enough. And Cable's from 4395, the Ascani future. No, he's from good old 616. A future version of Rachel pulls him to 4395 when he was a baby to save him from a techno-organic virus. It's sort of like how I'm technically from Indiana, but basically grew up in Florida. Well, okay, so how did she end up there? Traded places with Captain Britain in the time stream. Huh, so what about Nate Gray? He's from the Age of Apocalypse, Earth-295. So he's the version of Cable from that universe. Pretty much. Scott and Jean never really hooked up in Age of Apocalypse, so Nate was too grown and artificially aged by Sinister. Because of the whole destined-to-take-down-apocalypse thing. Exactly. Okay, I I think I'm getting the hang of this. Cable's Scott and Jean's kid from 616. Well, genetically, but Cable's mom is actually Madeline Pryor. How's that work? Well, after Jean died, Sinister freaked out because no Jean meant no chosen bane of apocalypse, so he cloned her, gave the clone a ton of fake memories, and dumped her in Alaska for a meet-cute with Scott. What?! Rachel Edidin. I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 22nd episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So, yeah, our 10th wedding anniversary is coming up, and in fact, that's going to be the day this episode goes up at Comics Alliance, right? Yeah, and so we've decided to be super self-indulgent and take a brief detour from chronology and skip to one of our favorite weddings in X-Men, the wedding of Scott Summers and Jean Grey. It's our damn podcast. If you want to have a different episode, you can make your own podcast. Haters to the left. (laughs) Uh, We're going to be talking about the whole relationship, although we're not going to catch every little detail because that would be way too much. a lot of it anyway. I mean, technically, we're going to be leading up to X-Men number 30, which is is the wedding issue. Yeah, that's from, from 1994, which is a really long time ago. That makes me feel super old. Yeah, and as we covered in the cold open, these are characters who've been around for a long time and been together in various iterations for a long time. We're not going to hit every point. We trust you'll be able to deal with that. We've mentioned on the show before that we kind of uh, identify with them as a couple and we like them a whole lot. I mean, if you look at our podcast's graphic, it's us as them, basically. Yeah, they're kind of our couple in a lot of ways. I've talked some about really, you know, identifying with Cyclops a lot as a character. And this is kind of separate from that. This is more specific to their relationship. Two kids who who got together and kind of fell in love as teenagers who've really not only been together for a long time, but kind of grew up together. Yeah, I mean, they were really defining themselves as individuals as they were defining themselves as a couple. And that's been, you know, one of the greatest strengths and also one of the greatest weak points of their relationship. Rachel, you and I have known each other since we were, what, like 11 or something? Yeah, sixth grade. And I mean, we've been together for, at this point, more than half our lives. So That's kind of crazy. Yeah, it feels like there are some parallels. I mean, there's less space and telekinesis and genetic manipulation, but a lot of the other same story beats, right? Speak for yourself, Mr. Stokes. What haven't you been telling me? Eh, Space stuff. Oh, well, I gotta hear those stories. 
So, yeah, Rachel, you mentioned that you identify with Cyclops, but that's sort of separate from identification with uh, Scott and Jean as a couple for us. And I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I love, love Jean Grey as a character. And while, again, we are both telekinetic and um, I I think some of her personality traits I I definitely understand and empathize with. But overall, you know, she's very different than me. I'm okay with that. I don't want you to be Scott and me to be Jean. Also, we would look really weird. Jean would look weird with a beard. Um, Jean would look amazing with a beard. Are you kidding? That's actually a very good point. Fantastic big bushy red beard (laughs) anyway so let's talk about scott and gene and where they came from and where they went scott and gene first meet in x-men number one and they spend about half of the silver age with huge unrequited crushes on each other each kind of privately angsting about it in the background yeah apparently people in the 60s were really bad at saying hey i like you you want to go on a date or something or at least they really were um to be fair i think people are still pretty bad about that So for the first 30-something issues of X-Men, there really wasn't more than that. There was a lot of, like, woeful, oh, if only he would see me, but he only sees the mission. And, oh, if only Jean would love me, but she could never love someone with eye lasers like me. I have eye lasers. In X-Men 32, which is the first issue where Scott and Jean really connect, Warren mentions at some point being on the rebound from Jean. I just read X-Men number 32 again in preparation for this, and... I hadn't realized just how little is actually said. It's not like, oh, Scott, I love you, and I love you forever, Gene. It's like, hey, so it's hard to talk about feelings because uh, I feel alone sometimes. And Gene's like, oh, you're not alone, dude. And that's basically it. Man, we talk about identifying with them as a couple. And I got to say, one of those points for me is that specific dynamic. We're going to come back to that because right now we're doing sort of the nickel tour of history leading up to the wedding, which jumps from there to the Claremont era. And they're still together at this point, but their relationship kind of gets put on hold for a while after Gene leaves the X-Men. Yeah, I mean, character development in the Silver Age, I'm not going to say it was static because it was definitely there, but it wasn't as continually momentous as it's become in the Bronze Age and, and thereafter. So their relationship was just kind of they were dating. Yeah, I'm not sure if they even really sort of officially got together or just in 32 and thought bubbles mutually decided that they were in love and then were kind of a couple from there. So yeah, Gene leaves the X-Men after Giant Size X-Men number one, as do the rest of the X-Men except for Scott. They're kind of in touch. We see Gene as a background character here and there. And they're just starting to rekindle their relationship when Gene turns into Phoenix. In fact, that's actually technically the end of what might actually be the worst date of all time. Oh, yeah, yeah, because they start out in New York and then the Sentinels And attack. then they end up in space. Wow. That's, yeah, that's cause, definitely cause a memorable date. still got that black dress that she's, she's putting on at the beginning. Oh, man, you're totally right. I forgot about that. Wow. Yeah. So at, at that point, Jean, you know, dies and becomes the Phoenix. And well, if you want more details on that, we've done a couple episodes about it. In fact, we specifically talked about that with Kurt Busiek last episode, which if you've listened to, you know that Jean didn't actually technically become the Phoenix. The Phoenix replicated her perfectly. And that'll become a little more relevant shortly. And actually, at this point, they start this this telepathic rapport where they can kind of always tell at least a little bit what's going on in the other's head. I mean, that's a, a really intimate, vulnerable thing. And it's, it's kind of a big deal when it happens. And Mastermind sort of throws a wrench in their relationship into what becomes the Dark Phoenix saga, but they're they're still together, and they're even briefly engaged during this period. Jean's sort of reading Scott's thoughts as he's picking her up after she's fallen after this big battle when she's going Dark Phoenix, and he essentially mentally proposes to her without realizing that's what he's doing, and she says yes. And it's great, and it's lovely, but then she dies. Right, she gets blown up by a Kree weapon on the blue area of the moon. Again, amazing story. We've talked about it a number of times on the podcast, and if we did it again right now, that would be the whole episode. Yeah, if you're a fan of awesome Scott and Jean stuff, or just awesome X-Men, or just just awesomeness, go read X-Men 137. And Jean stays dead for like a long time after this. I mean, Six years. Yeah, the initial plan was that she was going to stay dead forever. And the plan actually had been to have Scott meet a woman who he'd fall in love with and be gently written out of the book because Chris Claremont really thought that's what you should do, that nobody should stay in the X-Men forever. That's not healthy. 
Well, he did meet and marry someone, but she was retconned to be a clone of Jean Grey, and I kind of love that retcon because it's got the hilarious side effect that Scott spends years with Madeline before realizing that she's a perfect genetic clone of his dead girlfriend. You'd think that would come up. It's true. I mean, she does look, you know, almost exactly like Jean, and that that's commented on by the X-Men a number of times. Yeah, my no-prize explanation for this is that Scott just has really, really severe prognosia. Like, he's completely face-blind. <laughs> because it is the it is literally the only thing I can think of to justify but it. you'd think some of the X-Men would be like, uh, Scott, just just so you know, that you know that's basically Jean, right? What's, what's happening well, here? Well, I think there's a moment at Wolverine's wedding where they're all just awkward about it, and they notice but they don't say anything come on like this is like wolverine not telling the x-men they have brood embryos inside them you, you freaking say something it's like if somebody's got something hanging out of their nose you tell them if you're a well, good it's, friend it's a whole, if you see something say something if if your buddy gets engaged to a clone of his dead girlfriend you know you, you bring this up be a good bud you know don't, but, don't try to be but polite. no and so scott and madeline end up married and living in alaska and they they have a kid yeah, Nathan Christopher Summers is just a normal little boy. Nothing weird will ever happen with him. Yeah, he has a perfectly ordinary life. No, sorry. He grows up to be Cable. Oh, boy. Poor <laughs> no guy. One, no one deserves that. Um, but I do want to stress here. So Gene's dead during this time. Scott is doing his best to move on. And, you know, he and Madeline, before it goes completely to shit, actually have a pretty cool relationship. Yeah, Madeline starts out awesome. You see characters who are crossover casualties and continuity casualties, and I think Madeline Pryor is a terrific example of that. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, before she goes crazy, merges with a demon, and tries to destroy the entire world and bring hell onto Earth, she's great. You know, she's a good, interesting person. So their marriage goes kind of pear-shaped, though, because Scott can't quite bring himself to totally disconnect from the X-Men, and that, that keeps on throwing a wrench into things. Angel calls him to New York. When he leaves, Madeline and Nathan disappear completely. He can't get in touch with her. He keeps on calling her and tries to find her. And all of their house deeds have been rewritten. All of her files have been pulled out of public records. She's just gone. Her disappearance is a running thing for the first half of X-Factor. And it's an X-Factor that Jean comes back from the dead. And we learn that the Phoenix wasn't actually Jean. Jean has been in stasis at the bottom of Jamaica Bay. And she's back with no telepathy for some reason. And she and Scott fail to hook back up because Scott's still trying to find Madeline, who he's married to, even though he, kn- he knows that marriage is functionally over. But Madeline is gone and then apparently dies and then actually dies in Inferno um, after she becomes the Goblin Queen and tries to sacrifice a bunch of babies. And at that point, Jean gets Madeline's memories and she gets the Phoenix's memories and she gets her telepathy back, restoring her and Scott's telepathic link. Let's actually just go back a step, though, because Jean Grey came back from the dead. I feel like we cannot overstate what a big deal that is. She was the love of Scott Summer's life. She was dead, 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 as thoroughly dead as a person could be. He was just starting to move on, learn to define himself as somebody without her, and then, oh, hey, it turns well, out she's fine. he was kind of wrecking a marriage when she came back. Well, he, like, was, you know, he, he was trying. He and Maddie were pretty much fucked by then. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of X-Factor is them kind of figuring out, well, what do we do with this? Because up until Inferno, she doesn't have any memories of what happened with Phoenix. She doesn't have any knowledge of what the deal with Madeline was. A common complaint about Scott and Jean's relationship is it's very much the of course they do relationship, where they're they're together because they're supposed to be together. I feel like people who make that argument 
probably overlap significantly with people who haven't read the first X Factor series because a lot of it and a lot of the early arcs are about that. And it grows really organically over that era. That series is part of why I like them so much as a couple because it's not a foregone conclusion. Right. I mean, it's really dealing with the aftermath of, okay, this is a bizarre situation. How would people potentially react to that? Would they just say, okay, let's try to get back to the dynamic we had before? Would they say, screw this, this is too weird, I'm not even trying? Or in the case of Scott and Jean, would they say, well, this is a really weird situation, but let's try to address it for what it is, and let's try to see if we can make this work. And that's kind of awesome. It's that kind of choice that I just really love about Scott and Jean as a couple. So there's a long period following that where they're together, but they're really reluctant to put a label on it. One of the things that happens during this period is that they meet Rachel Summers, who they eventually learn is the kid of a Scott and Jean from an alternate timeline. That'll kind of mess you up, you know? Yeah, and that's actually why they don't get married for so long, because Jean is really, really horrified at the idea that there's something that mandated really bothers her. And that's something that's another thing that really interests me about them as a couple, because, again, they're written as the of course they are, that there are things that's like, oh, no, you have this story has to get Scott and Jean back together. But if they have a driving theme within the fiction of X-Men, it is holding hands and raising their middle fingers to the face of fate. They are the couple who persistently refuse to be defined by things that push them apart or by things that push them together. Yeah, I mean, it's really just that cover to X-Men 137, you know, them against all odds on the moon. Like, that's them as a couple defined. It never fails to sort of give me goosebumps just looking at that or thinking about it. This episode is nominally about the wedding of Scott Summers and Jean Grey. So how, how do we get from that point A to point B? And I do, want, I do want to stress here, just sort of as an aside. So, Rachel, you and I are married, and that's awesome. And I'm really glad we did that a, a million years ago. Or it's really case, cool maybe. having health insurance. Yeah, I, we also have these neat rings we can wear. I can make a little, like, like clinky sound when I... When I hit it against the you know table. you can get those without actually being married, right? Psh, whatever. And you know Scott and Jean get married, and that's awesome. That's a big turning point for them. But you know that works for them as a couple. I don't want it to seem like we're saying that that has to be there for everybody. Like marriage is an awesome thing if you want to do it, and if you don't, that's awesome as well. That's a super weird but kind of adorable tangent. I think it's important. So Scott proposes to Jean during the Dark Phoenix saga, but she's Phoenix and then she dies, so that doesn't really exactly count. And then he actually proposes to her again in X Factor Fifty Three. Like you said earlier, Rachel. She She's just been integrated with the memories of the Phoenix from when the Phoenix was in her form and the memories of Madeline from when Madeline was with Scott. And so she's a little mixed up and overwhelmed by that, completely understandably. Well, and it actually, if I remember correctly, cuts back between him proposing to her then and the two of them getting engaged when she was Phoenix. And it's it's really unsettling. And so she's like, no, I... I can't do that right now. I love you, but I cannot say yes to that question. And again, a big theme in X Factor at this point has been about her trying to refine an identity and the two of them to sort of renegotiate and feel out a relationship independent of what Scott and Phoenix, who he thought was Jean, had. This is at least her way of, again, refusing to just fall into the expectations and pattern. And that's basically where our status quo, at least in terms of them being married or not, is for a long time. Until X-Men 308. So yeah, this is Uncanny X-Men number 308. So this was in 1994. This was an issue by Scott Lobdell and John Romita Jr. So at this point, there were two main X-Men books. I mean, there were a lot of X-Men spinoffs, but the two main X-Men books were Uncanny X-Men and X-Men. Yeah, this is 1994, so it's like peak collector boom. Ostensibly, X-Men was about the blue team of the X-Men, which were about half the members, and Uncanny X-Men was about the gold 
old team, but by this point they were starting to just overlap a whole bunch going back and forth, and effectively you kind of had to read both of them to know what was going on. This had been a really bad year for the X-Men, even by X-Men standards. 308 is coming straight on the heels of Fatal Attractions. Oh man, that was the one with all the holograms on the covers? Yeah, and the inlaid trading cards. Right. So a lot of bad stuff had happened during that. Yeah, Fatal Attractions is known primarily as the story where Magneto straight up rips out Wolverine's skeleton. And then Xavier pretty much mind wipes Magneto, although obviously neither of those things would take. And then Colossus ditches the X-Men to go join Magneto's acolytes in space because his little sister who was de-aged in Inferno, has just died of the legacy virus. So there's some bad stuff going on. And like this whole time, um, Sabretooth is at the X-Mansion and Xavier's trying to rehabilitate him, but he's super scary. and like Right, so everyone's a little on edge at this point. You know, we talk about how the X-Men are, are best when their backs are up against the wall. Sometimes the writers maybe take that a little too far. Yeah, this is probably this one of those times. This isn't the X-Men with their backs against the wall. Fatal Attractions is the X-Men with their backs against the wall. This is the X-Men lying in the rubble of the wall they had their backs to because it got knocked down while they were leaning against it. <laughs> Shoddy capitalist workmanship. Maybe that's why Colossus left. Yeah. Ugh. So, yeah. Um, now, we've talked about how there are occasionally these quiet moment issues of X-Men that work really well, where you just sort of show the characters interacting with one another and doing what they're doing when they're not fighting supervillains. Yeah, and those are often either sort of eye of the hurricane issues or moments between big fights and big events and big arcs. We've come back to those a couple times as some of our favorite moments and issues of X-Men, and that's very much the case here and this is the part where i start getting all like emotional and stuff because goddamn this whole event just i i i get all misty every time i read it i uh, love these see, characters i have trouble getting past how much i hate the way john romita jr draws faces everyone has these really alarming lips <laughs> and and that entire issue is is a quiet personal moment so it's, it's a lot of close-ups and it's really unsettling well i love it regardless what we're basically seeing, it's around Thanksgiving in this issue, we're basically cutting back and forth between most of the X-Men hanging out in the X-Yard, playing football with each other. And that's sort of a running tradition in X-Men, that yeah, there'll just be periodic interstitial X-Men issues where they're all playing usually baseball, occasionally football, and again, usually after some kind of big cataclysmic thing. It's something that they sort of come back to as a tradition and that the comic comes back to as a tradition. And then it cuts back and forth between that and between Scott and Jean just sort of hanging out, watching all this happen, and talking. Jean goes back to these various flashbacks of them uh, when they were younger, like much younger, black and yellow costumes and everything, which is actually uh, kind of surreal to see 90s era art with the X-Men in the black and yellow costumes. It, it's, it's a weird yeah, combination. Yeah, man, this whole arc is so incredibly 90s. It's, <laughs> yeah, it it's really kind is. kind of amazing. She's going back to stories like uh when she first knew that scott was the one for her i guess when she was more from when she was first intrigued it takes place in between x-men number one and two like in 1963 he's working on danger room stuff and she asks him his name because you know obviously slim is not his real name right if you recall scott doesn't actually get the name scott until x-men number three they're just sort of bantering, and he almost falls off the ladder as they're talking. No, he does fall off the ladder. She just catches him. Right, she catches him with her telekinesis. She's sort of almost emotionally disarming him in a, a pattern that I think has become really indicative of how they've interacted since then, you know? Like, he's this kind of uptight, guarded guy. Well, kind of maybe an understatement there. And she she sees through that. She sees that there's this really deep, complex person underneath all that that most people don't see, and she just has this great way of making him sort of forget to keep his defenses up. And then usually he realizes and then puts them back up again. But even when they were teenagers, we were still seeing the beginning of that. Yeah, have we mentioned that this is a relationship we identify with a lot? <laughs> Hint, I'm not Scott. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, that's why what happens in X-Men 32 is such a big deal. 
What's significant about it to me is that it's the point at which Scott actually seeks Jean out, which isn't a huge shift, but in terms of the dynamic of their relationship is a huge turning point. Well, it's really the first time she knows that not only is she interested, but that he is too. Yeah, there's there's a great moment in that issue where the two of them are dancing. It's Bobby's 18th birthday. And again, if you listen to, to the last episode with Kurt Busiek, we talk about this issue a lot. Um, but there's a great moment of the two of them dancing and both of them being convinced that the other's only doing it out of obligation. And they're totally us in eighth grade, <laughs> yeah, they, except they that they're are. like 19. So I feel like we're ahead of the curve there. Yes. Getting the head start. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, it's, it's cutting back and forth between Scott and Jean talking and reminiscing and just, you know, looking down on the X-Men who are straight up their family at this point. Like, you know, yes, Jean, Jean does have a family and she gets along well with them, but they've spent their lives since they were very young, since they were 16 or so, with the X-Men, with Xavier, with their friends. And, you know, and this whole time they're watching the background of this, the B-plot, is the X-Men playing this football game and very much underlines the X-Men as a family and what that means. As they're thinking about it and going back through that, Jean proposes to Scott. I guess they, they kind of figure there's never going to be a right time. Things are never going to calm down. So what the hell? If we're waiting for things to be calm, we're never going to get married. Let's just do this. So yeah, I want to read part of this, what Gene says to Scott, as he's almost a little dumbfounded. When I was young, withdrawn, frightened, your love challenged me to be more than I was, to become all I was capable of becoming. You gave me the strength to open my mind, my heart. Our love was enough to stop the phoenix, Scott, enough to save an entire universe. I have to believe it is strong enough that we can change the future that seems to have been planned for us. Rachel suffering at the hands of the Sentinels, Bishop and his paramilitary XSE, everything we've learned about Nathan Christopher. Our love is stronger than destiny, Scott. It has to be. Man, oh, that's such a good scene. The last panel of that page is the two of them silhouetted. The dialogue there is... So what do you say, Mr. Summers? I say I love you, Miss Gray. Today, tomorrow and every day for the rest of my life. I can't even tell whether this is really a good comic because I just don't care. Their relationship, this is it right here. It just rings so true. Like, knowing all of the context of the character, having read just dozens and dozens, and I guess really hundreds if you count the stuff that comes after, this this feels exactly like what it should be to me right here. At this point, my response to that scene in particular is almost Pavlovian. (laughs) Because that last panel, we send each other a lot of comics panels just as emails and as conversations and as, you know, endearments or fights or whatever. That's one of the ones that we've come back to more than any other. That panel is what we send each other as love letters. We're totally sappy, dude. We're totally sappy. I regret nothing. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, that's X Uncanny X-Men 308, and it ends with uh, a Thanksgiving dinner as Professor Xavier basically says, hey, we've been through some really hard shit this year, but you know, we're a family, we're together. And that's where Scott and Jean announce their engagement. And everyone is so freaking overjoyed. And Except it's... for Xavier, who, who goes off to have feelings about Amelia Vogt for a while. But that's, that's a whole other thing that we're not going <laughs> to go over this episode. So the actual wedding, that's in the other X-Book at the time, X men on number 30 and there's been a little bit of of lead up in uncanny 310 i kind of love it because scott completely fails to have a bachelor party (laughs) if anyone's Um, going to it's going to be him yeah but for a really good reason which is that he and cable who've been kind of at each other's throats for a really long time finally actually really click but in x-men number 30 they finally get married and one of the things that's interesting about this issue is that it is framed by letters from Wolverine. Yeah, now Wolverine, he's gone from the X-Men at this point, like we mentioned. He's sort of going off to find himself and to recuperate after Magneto rips his adamantium out. And uh, do we want to read that letter? Um, yeah, if you want. Okay, cool. Gene and Scott, what am I going to say? I don't even know. I've never been too good at writing about the things I feel inside. Why aren't you doing this in a Wolverine voice? Should I? You guys are something special, and most times you don't even see it. 
You go together like fire and ice, like a hurricane in its eye. Yeah, you're right. This is way better. Yeah. It sounds strange, but it fits. One can't exist without the other. Each one makes the whole stronger than the parts. That doesn't really work with the fire and ice metaphor, but you know. Eh. I'm leaving for now, because the old canical head's parts ain't better than the whole anymore. Besides, it's time to take the next step in life. Maybe you should look at each other with new eyes the way I've had to look at myself and ask yourselves, isn't it time we do the same thing? Isn't it time we took the next step in our lives too? Love, Logan. I'm going to talk about this for a minute because one of the things that's a running thing in X-Men is the Scott Jean Logan love triangle. It's one of the things that I, I least buy. I agree, because the vast majority of the time, I mean, you know, yeah, there is that romantic tension, absolutely, that's there from from day one, but Wolverine really respects Cyclops and Jean, and he really respects the relationship, and you know, what I'm actually going to blame for that is, as much as I like it, the first X-Men movie, because it really played that up. And then in the comic, you started seeing a lot more of that. It rings false to me, too, because one of the ways that Wolverine is more and more defined in the comic is as a character who's really honorable. Totally. And who's really driven by that and who really chooses that as his identity in the face of other stuff. And it's like this is the one exception and that's never really addressed. And I think it's stupid. So it's really nice to see that here. You know, if we're going to have this issue that sort of defines everything about Scott and Jean's relationship, it just brings it all together, brings the X-Men together as family. Then, you know, yeah, Wolverine's not here for story reasons. And, you know, that's that's fine. But at least he's really being true to himself. And that that makes me really happy. I love that about this issue. Yeah. One of the things you brought up when we were talking before we recorded is that in both 308 and X-Men 30, these are kind of the X-Men as their best selves, not just Scott and Jean, but the characters around them. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's heartwarming start to finish. And we just we, it's easy to read these issues and remember why we love these characters so much. Yeah, they're in terrible stories. Sometimes they do terrible things. Sometimes the art's covered in way too many pouches, especially in this era. But they're fictional family. You know, I feel like I, I know them as well as some of the people I'm closest to in my life. And it's it's kind of always going to be that way. This issue really reminds me of to what degree that's the case. So the first half of X-Men 30 is Scott and Jean separately getting ready for their wedding. It starts with Jean, and she's with her mom and Storm and Rachel Summers, who again is her and Scott's daughter from an alternate timeline. And Jean has made a point of not getting along with Rachel. Like, Rachel really, really tries to bond with her because she's, you know, she's from the timeline where her parents were killed when she was a little kid. And being in a universe where there are versions of them alive is a really big deal to her. And Jean sees her as... You know, I think the way most people would see someone showing up and saying, I'm your kid from an alternate timeline, which is as an absolutely terrifying specter. It's like a really bizarre version of Caitlin Stark and Jon Snow. No, no, it's really not. I like my parallel. No, that would be Cable. And the analogy doesn't work at all because she's totally down with Cable. Sigh. I'm just trying to make timely references, Rachel. The kids love the games and their thrones. No, but it's a bad analogy. <laughs> all right, I'll rescind it then. Thank you. You were saying... I was saying correctly that now, um, now actually, if you want a good analogy, I've actually got one from current all new X-Men. Oh yeah. Because the time displaced original five are in the present before Scott and Jean get together. And at one point, teenage Scott, he's got a safety deposit box that he's apparently had since he was a teenager because he knows where it is and he has the key to it. In it, he finds adult Scott and Jean's wedding invitation. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's finding that and Jean seeing it that basically prevents those versions of them from hooking up. Look, destiny, and if we've established one thing about Scott and Jean, if there's a thing that is a complete cock block to them, it's fate. 
But yeah, shortly before this storyline, Jean had finally kind of reconciled with Rachel, which is really sweet. And this is basically her saying, hey, I know we've had some weird, weird history, to say the very least. But as far as I, I, I feel, you're my daughter, and I'm really glad you're here for this event. It's an honor to have you here. Yeah, I think there's no, she specifically says, you know, I'd be really proud to be your mom. And it's a really good resolution, especially because Rachel then immediately goes and gets lost in the time stream and getting Captain Britain back. Yeah, so it's nice to have that resolution beforehand. Meanwhile, Scott is getting ready with the other dudes of the original X-Men. And there's a great panel of the five of them not being able to figure out how to tie a bow tie. Yeah, Andy Kubert is hit and miss for me. Um, There are some things he's very good at and some things he's not. He's a very expressive writer. Um, Every single dude he draws looks like every single other dude, which can get really confusing. Oh, yeah, I noticed that. Like Iceman and Jean Grey's dad and Cable all look pretty much the same. Well, that's sort of... You can can justify that with Dr. Grey and Cable because they're technically related. That is a really good point. But this panel is kind of, for me, also a reminder of how good he is with body language and facial expressions. And just, it's a great moment. And it leads into a really terrific scene with Xavier, who's, you know, I talk a lot of shit about Charles Xavier. And I think in a lot of ways... Ways, he's functionally the villain of his own book, or at least ends up written that way. But if he's got an arc in X-Men, especially in the first you know 30 or so years of X-Men, it's learning to let his kids grow up. That narrative and that transition frames Scott and Jean's wedding, and it does it really beautifully. We talked earlier about how this story is really kind of the X-Men as their best selves. And that's very, very much the case with Xavier. Oh, yeah. So he's, he's sitting here tying uh, this bow tie that, that none of the other X-Men can get. You see, my X-Men, I am as nervous as all of you are. This wedding is forcing me to look at all of us in a new light. What I have known for some time now has made official, in a way, by today's events. The hard, simple truth is that you are all undeniably adults now. And that leads me to question myself and wonder, do any of you really need the old prof anymore? Your tie is ready, Scott. Uh, was that by any chance a setup? Actually, I stumbled upon the analogy by accident. But yeah, it's, it's just really nice. Like he's recognizing his own foibles. He's recognizing that he's basically, you know, a father giving his kids away in a sense. And he's both overjoyed to do so. And also he, he feels a sense of loss. I mean, it's not like Scott and Jean are going anywhere. Well, honeymoon into the future for 12 years aside. But I, I can definitely understand that they're not just his kids anymore. They're, this is really them officially, in a way they haven't before, starting their own lives. And there are going to be great moments that mirror that directly from both Jean and Scott later on in the issue. At this point, it goes into the ceremony. There are points where this issue is overwrought, and there are points where it gets slightly silly. And it's fictional character weddings, especially when their events are so wildly hit and miss. And so that's why I think it's significant that Scott and Jean basically have the best wedding vows of all time. They do. Can we just can we just read these? Yeah, we can just read these. There were times I was lost, and you found me. There were days which were heavy, and you lightened my heart. Through it all, since the day we met, there was you for me, and me for you. That hasn't changed. That will never change. Through pain and passion. Through sorrow and hope. Through death and through life. No matter what tomorrow may bring, we will face it together. I'd like to speak for us all when I say, aww. God, their vows were so much better than ours. <laughs> Yeah, well, they were written by professional writers. And then they kiss, and it's a really good kiss, but it is not actually the best kiss in X-Men. I I want to make that point. I think that's an important point. Um, The best kiss in X-Men is actually from X-Men 41, and it is Rogue and Gambit. Oh, yeah, right as the Emicron Crystal is is, uh, destroying the entire universe and overwriting it. Yeah, I I don't know the whole Princess Bride speech about the greatest kisses of all time, but that. So I got to jump in here with a story about our wedding. 
when we got married, it was a super geeky wedding, which I'm sure comes as a great surprise to everyone. Well, it was it was mostly kind of stealth nerdy. So we, we did things like the main theme of Final Fantasy was the processional. And it was it was one of those things that a dozen of our friends got. And our families were just like, oh, that's a really nice wedding march. So there was a lot of stuff like that. And the one significant exception was the cover of the programs. Yeah, we did it up like a comic book cover with, you know, September 2004 as, as the date. And uh, it was that panel of Gambit and Rogue kissing on the cover. So that's actually the best kiss from X-Men. But, you know, Scott and Jeans is okay, too. (laughs) It goes from there into the reception slash aftermath. Lila Chaney, we're going to get to her later when we cover New Mutants Annual Number 1. Lila Chaney is so great, you guys. She's an intergalactic rock star mutant. This is kind of a great weird point of X-Men trivia and lineup, is that Lila Chaney's main band is called Cats Laughing. And they're an actual band. They were a, a folk rock group, mostly a bunch of science fiction and fantasy writers. And they're they're really solid. They're, I don't think they're still together. But they exist in a bunch of fictional contexts. They're part of the shared Borderlands universe, and they're in the Marvel universe, because Chris Claremont was friends with some of them. Cats Laughing first shows up in an arcade issue randomly in murder world and then later on they become lila cheney's backup band wow the more you know <laughs> but yeah they're they're the band uh for the wedding and it mentions at one point that lila's really annoyed that they're making her play like soft jazz throughout dinner yeah she's basically the joan jett of the x-men yeah but yeah she plays the first dance for scott and gene and it's the song one by you two when we asked for questions for this episode one of the most common ones we got was why would you ever make one by you two the first dance at your wedding? I mean, isn't that song's a, a huge downer, right? Yeah, it's it's a beautiful song musically, but the lyrics are pretty dark. That's something that X-Men 30 actually directly addresses. So Xavier is narrating the entire issue. The bride and groom, elegant in their composure, radiant in their joy, begin their first dance. The music rises, a haunting melody, both sad and uplifting at the same time, wholly appropriate to reflect the lives they've shared. And I kind of buy that because it's easy to forget just how much shit they've been through and have just really persevered and really defined themselves in the face of all of this. And this wedding is them essentially saying, fuck you to fate, to all of the hard times they've experienced, as saying that the, the future is, is more important than the past. And I think that's really characteristic of them as a couple, looking at all the dark stuff and owning it and then still deciding that the chorus is the part that matters most. Although there is one verse, because it's too late tonight to drag the past out into the light. We're one, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other, carry each other. It works. And for me, actually, so I was um, listening to a lot of U2 when I was reading this era of X-Men when I was younger. And so Achtung Baby, the album that this is from, is totally my X-Men album. Like, there are all these X-Men connections in it for me. Ah, see, for me, it's totally the Fragile by Nine Inch Nails, because I started reading X-Men so much later. Oh, so yeah, right. You've said that We're in This Together is Yeah, is, is the, the Scott moon. and Gene on the Moon song for me. <laughs> We're officially dorks, if ever that was uh, Which is why it, was, it totally messed with my head when they used it in the Avengers trailer. Like, really? No, no. Wrong Marvel franchise, guys. Come on, get with the program. And yeah, so we see a lot of the, the reception. We see Sabretooth, who's uh, in his weird, like, Hannibal Lecter mask and big metal gloves saying, hey, I could really mess this up. He's out in the snow. He turns around after getting whapped in the back and sees, don't even think about it, uh, drawn into the snow, which implies, yeah, Wolverine, in fact, is there. He's not attending, but he's making sure everything goes well for these people he cares so much about. Yeah, there's also just a lot of sort of people putting aside rivalries and having, again, a lot of small good character moments. Uh, Yeah, like you see Valerie Cooper and Cable, who's at the time wanted by the government, 
meeting up somewhat awkwardly and her saying, yeah, so I didn't see anything. And you see Rain Sinclair, Wolfsbane, and Richter, who haven't seen each other in a long time, meeting up for the first time. It's really just everyone coming back together. All the different team members from all the different X-Books, a lot of the ancillary supporting characters, everybody's here for this. This thing is representative of how things can go right for the X-Men. And then there's, you know, the requisite ridiculous scene with the garter and the bouquet. And- oh, yes, I love this. I love this. So uh, they're throwing the bouquet and Rogue just flies over everybody and grabs it. And they're like, hey, no fair, no powers. And then they're throwing the garter later and Gambit blows everybody up to take it. And then they make out at the end of the world and then she abandons him to die in Antarctica. So, you know. Gambit and Rogue are complicated people, but I do just love this. Gambit just- and Rogue are complicated people should just, yeah, that's going to be a t-shirt at some point. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's silly, yeah, but you know, there needs to be some silliness. There needs to be some lightheartedness and it's not just all super serious romancy stuff. It's also just the X-Men being ridiculous, both Uncanny 308 with a football game where they're all using their powers and being terrible and X-Men 30 where Gambit blows everybody up. <laughs> and the issue ends... Um, Xavier is kind of our frame here. Later on in the issue, we get to two moments that really directly reflect you know, the bowtie speech that he gives to Scott. And the first one is the last dance of the wedding. So yeah, Jean telekinetically pulls Xavier out of his wheelchair so they can dance. And he's like, what are you doing? Everyone's going to see. And she says, most of the guests have left. And what if they did know about us, Charles, that I'm a mutant or that I'm a woman who wants to celebrate the best day of her life? If dancing with you is what makes me happy and being a mutant gives me the opportunity to do that then there's nothing in this world I would rather be than a mutant. And I'm proud to dance with a man who taught me that being one should in no way limit the happiness I can enjoy or the love I might share with those I'm blessed to call my family. Oh, man. That gets me every freaking time. I love Professor Xavier. He's the person I want to have in my life. He's, he's the father figure I want everyone to get a chance to have. And it's beautiful right there. And then Scott and Xavier have sort of a similar moment. It's after everyone has left and Scott's on his way out the door. You know, Xavier is, is worrying about them. And Scott says, you know, that's the point, sir, because of what you've taught us, how you raised me. I fully expect it can and will be a better day. I just wanted you to know that, that if it weren't for you, for your guidance and your courage, for the sense of purpose you've given me, I would have been lost. You saved me. You gave my life meaning, gave me hope, gave me the chance to become something more, better than I would ever have been. For all that, I thank you, and I wanted to say, I love you, Charles Xavier. That's a tearjerker moment in context of the issue, and in context of the uh, 20 years since, even more so. Oh yeah, as their relationship slowly falls apart until Cyclops kills Professor Xavier. But you know, I think it's important with stories like this to really look at them as capsules in time. Like you look at the story partially in the context of what comes later, sure, but this right here is just an unabashedly happy moment. And you know, I say savor that. Well, and again, it's something that we talked about in context of of choosing one for their first dance, that there is a lot of dark stuff, but it doesn't define things and it doesn't make the other stuff go away. Absolutely. Which beautifully segues to the very end of the episode, which is uh, Wolverine's letter to Professor Xavier. Uh, Xavier's had the letter the whole time, and he keeps not finding time to read it, not finding time to read it, and he opens it after Scott leaves. And, you know, the first letter was this really big, long thing to Scott and Jean. This one says, Dear Chuck, lighten up. Your old pal, Logan. And the issue ends with Xavier just 
bursting into laughter. It's perfect. I love it. This was sort of an event for Marvel. So they also put out this oversized wedding album. This magazine size. It was like eight and a half by 11. It was. And yes, I spent $3 of my allowance money on that, which were a comic at the time was kind of a lot. And I'm glad because I still have it. Damn it. I don't know. It's sweet. It's fun. I, I don't think it's nearly as good as X-Men 30. It does have some really great pinups toward the end, which are framed as Kitty's uh, video wedding album to Scott and Jean since she can't afford a gift. You see some great pinups of like Nightcrawler sweeping Psylocke off of her feet and teleporting her away from Angel to give her a rose. Yeah, it's it's very much a tie-in product. <laughs> it actually has the uh, dress design that was done by this famous uh, wedding designer, uh, Nicole Miller, I believe was her name. Yeah, that's something that Marvel's done more than once. I remember them doing something similar with when, when Storm married Black Panther 2. Yep. So there you have it, the the wedding of Cyclops and Jean Grey, 1994's shining, shining moment of heartwarming glory. And then they completely failed to live happily ever after, which is, I think, something worth bringing up because it's something that other people tend to bring up when we mention, you know, really liking and identifying with them as, as a couple. You know, isn't it kind of fucked up to identify so positively with a couple whose relationship can really be read as having ultimately failed? What with the whole Emma Frost thing and her dying and... Well, and also just them in a lot of ways, persistently failing to grow into adult life together. Yeah, I really don't think that that part has to be parallel. I think this is an issue where we we can take the good stuff and we don't have to have that part be part of it. Yeah, I mean, I think we have a huge advantage here in that um, our relationship is not primarily editorially driven. <laughs> this is true. You know, that's <laughs> we, actually... we, we don't we don't have we don't have that angry narrator, which is, is I think, a great advantage. Um, and yeah, I think that's something that's important to come back to in general with points of identification is that we're talking about two fictional characters and we're talking about a relationship that existed and was created and continued and changed largely to hold the attention of and to appeal to readers. And something that's a persistent trend in comics and fiction in general, sometimes explicitly at Marvel, God, is the idea that happy marriages, that happy long-term relationships don't make good stories. And I think it's definitely more challenging. There are less superficial hooks. But I think more than anything else, Scott and Jean long-term have been kneecapped by that. And I think what it comes down to is that even if it does end badly, that doesn't get rid of the good stuff. You know, that doesn't make things stop meaning what they mean. It's like, yes, Jean comes back after the Dark Phoenix Saga, but the Dark Phoenix Saga is still an amazing tragedy. And yes, Scott and Jean, ultimately, their relationship doesn't work out. But that doesn't mean that when it did work out, when they were happy like this, when they were really working well together, that doesn't make that matter any less. If there's a moral to Scott and Jean as a couple, in or out of continuity, it's ultimately that you make your own meaning. That's what we choose to do with that. The dark stuff doesn't make the light go away. Okay, and I think with that, we're out of time for today. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is, as always, recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Bobby Roberts. Bobby co-hosts the awesome podcast, Welcome to That Whole Thing. You can check it out online at welcometothatwholething.com. And you should also check out our website, which is at rachelandmiles.com. We have visual companion posts for every episode that go up on Sundays, and articles, art, and a bunch of other stuff. New episodes air at Comics Alliance every Thursday, and rachelandmiles.com, iTunes, and Stitcher on Sundays. If you're enjoying the show and would like to support it, please take a minute to check out our Patreon campaign. You can find a link from rachelandmiles.com. And also, please rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. Next week, we are taking our first ever week off from the podcast to celebrate our anniversary. But we will be back the week after that to meet the first and one of the best ongoing X-Men spinoffs. The New Mutants. Thanks for sticking with us, guys. I know we were super sappy. We love you all. One life with each other.